So once upon a time when we were coloured, it really felt like we were always being followed by the old Bill. No matter if we were on the run or standing still, you were always on the lookout for the coppers who were more than likely going to show up to bother you and your business. It didn't make no sense. Please officer, don't give me producer, was the lyric from Smiley Culture from back when it was like it was an offence to drive whilst black and going about your business. Like I say, it didn't make no sense and I didn't know how we and them were going to work it out, to be honest. We called them beast and many of them saw us as thieves and knew that the judge who didn't have no sense would give us a sentence if we were taken to court. So we had was to fight, so we fought, whether we liked it or not. And if you want the scenario, go and read or listen to Sonny's letter by Linton Kwesi Johnson and you'll know what we had was to go through and what youths are still having to go through back then, as far as we were concerned, cops were white and there wasn't no use in arguing. We did not even think you could be black and recruited. We had never heard of John Kent, the black Bobby in the 19th century. It wasn't until Norwell Roberts in 1967 that we realized that we could join the constabulary. Even though he was an anomaly that they rolled out at televised football games at Arsenal's old Highbury Stadium and the TV cameras always focused on him, but it wasn't until the force was described as institutionally racist after the murder of Stephen Lawrence by a gang of racists that the police started seriously trying to recruit from our communities. Superintendent Robin Williams was an officer even before that. She's done 36 years on the force whilst being black and then she got arrested and charged and convicted just last week. But what has she done wrong? Everybody wants to know. I asked Detective Sergeant Janet Hills, chair of the Black Police Association, how did Superintendent Robin Williams, one of the highest ranking officers on the force, get herself in the mess she's in? Um, well, to be fair, anyone, this can happen to anyone. It's not just specific to her. I think the specifics is that actually she just happens to be a police officer. But the reality of the situation is that it can happen to any single person who's got a mobile device that they carry around with them or even in their homes. Um, the story is that she was given or was sent an unsolicited clip of, um, um, of an image, uh, an indecent image of, of a child, which uh, she never saw. It was sent via WhatsApp. She hadn't seen it um, and she maintained that the defence solicitors and the uh, prosecution solicitors, their experts, agreed that she hadn't viewed it. Uh, but because the law is such that if you're in possession, uh, you are then guilty of the offence. Um, there is no defence to having it in possession, which makes it an absolute offence. So once it's in your possession, whether you've seen it or not, the law says that you are guilty, effectively. And that's what that's what's happened to her in this case, is that that was sent to her unsolicited, unsolicited. Uh, she wasn't aware of it, hadn't seen it, hadn't played it. Um, and she's found herself in court. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm not telling you something that you don't know already. The the buzz, if you like, in the community is that there's some kind of conspiracy going on. People are calling foul and saying, 
is this because she is black? Has her race got anything to do with her being brought to court by her employers, the police force? So I would say not directly, but indirectly, yes. Because what we know is that within policing, there is disproportionality in terms of misconduct. So what we're finding, and the data supports this, is that we are more likely to find ourselves in the misconduct world, having made a mistake or, you know, got into a situation that has put us in there, when actually there could be more work done about finding out how a mistake was made, and again, a different avenue taken. Uh, So what we're finding in policing is that if you're black or Asian, that you are twice as likely to be facing misconduct. So what's happened to Robin is systematic of the sort of environment that we find ourselves in. Why is that? Why is that? You know, a generation after the McPherson report, why, why is it that the Metropolitan Police in particular, or specifically, is still institutionally racist? Why? Only, you know, I... I, I don't know the answer, if I'm honest. I, I, I want to be able to say that there is an answer. Um, what I will say is that unless they're prepared to own the fact that there is institutional racism, that's the only way that you will deal with the problem. But they're not accepting that there is a problem and therefore you can't deal with it. So that that's my take on it. How frustrating is that from your perspective, from the perspective of other police officers, not least Robin Williams, because, look, this is an officer that's had 36 years of an unblemished record in the force. You'd have thought by then she could be the person to go out and say, look, the police force has changed. Yeah, so it's frustrating. It it is frustrating, but it's also infuriating. It, 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 It... impacts on you in in a very negative way in in terms of the emotions. Um, The fact that officers who are African, Caribbean or Asian heritage are here being the best cops and police staff that they can be. And you're aware of this data. You're aware that actually what our parents told us is, you know, you have twice as hard to, you know, prove yourself is indeed true in terms of, you know, being a police officer. So there are challenges, but you can still go through and and not face those challenges. It's just a bit of potluck, I guess. What our parents told us, let me be more direct, what my father told me about the police was that whatever happens, don't sign any statement if you're arrested by the police. And this was a hard thing for somebody who believed in this society to say to his son at the age of 10 or 11, because at that time in the, what would it be, the 70s, there was a lot of uh, mistrust from our community, as there is still to a certain extent, uh, about the police and particularly about the sus laws. And time and time again, there were incidents that we knew about in our community of what we would describe as 
rough justice. Do I still have to tell my children the same? I think, as they say, knowledge is power. So I would definitely, you know, give advice around if you're in contact with police in terms of, say, something like stop and search or if you just stopped, um, that you know your rights. So, you know, there's certain things police officers can do. Um, but I think the main thing is that actually always have in your mind that, you know, you, well, I say you're going to always have in your mind anyway, the fact that you've got all of this legacy in terms of the police and community contact, where actually, you know, just, 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 just respond, you know, in a reasonable way, you know, don't get upset uh, in terms of having that contact. Just, just, you know, try and, you know, ask, answer their questions and, and be yourself in, in terms of that is all I can say. Um, because there's a lot of training internally that happens around that contact. Uh, so a lot of the data that we have, again, talks about, you know, being respected and, you know, made, made, made to feel that when they're talking to you, when police officers are talking to you, that they're, they're respecting who you are and your views and everything like that. So there is that training that goes on within policing around stop and search in particular. Should we feel safer if we're stopped and searched by police officers, one of whom is black? I, you know, I, I can't answer that question. I know that I've done stop and search in my time. And I guess what I bring to the table in terms of that contact is the fact that I, I I get the history, I get the legacy, I get where we're coming from. So if someone is talking to me and they are loud and they're moving their hands about, I don't see that as a threat. What I do is I, I, I get it. And, you know, I'll talk quieter if that means that actually they then calm down because obviously behaviour breeds behaviour. So from my perspective, um, if I'm if I've decided to stop someone to have a conversation about whatever the situation might be, then I'm prepared to deal with the fact that they're carrying a legacy um, that I'm aware of that actually would have me deal with them in a respectful manner. Because we are agitated, you know, black men particularly, are, I'm sure black women as well, and other races and other demographics as well are agitated even if you're a white man you know the police stops you there is a certain amount of agitation it's kind of like what have i done what have i done if you're driving your car you think you've broken uh, some traffic code if you're walking on the street you feel as if well you know i've been singled out or whatever it might be and for those of us who it has happened to several times there is a certain amount of agitation that comes in. It's not because, you know, we're black, we talk loudly. And that may be <laughs> an issue, but that's not... The, the reason is because here we go again. Here we go again. Now, if you're, if you're not able to tell me whether I can feel like this is a non-racial stop because one of the officers is black then what what can we believe in the thing is if, if an officer is stopping you they should have what is termed as reasonable suspicion to do so 
But that doesn't mean anything, though, does it? It doesn't really mean anything because it's in the eye of the beholder. It's like VAR in football. Yeah, the referee has a kind of leniency, you know, a, a wide remit of sort of understanding whether it should go to VAR or not. It's down to him to a certain extent. It's it's down to the beholder to... to, to yeah, but what that then does is if you're aware that actually they're not stopping you for a reason or no reason, I should say, then you can then have that conversation. And that's potentially that what doesn't happen. As you say, people are agitated and then, you know, it raises the bar and it raises the bar. And then before you know it, we're, we're in a space where we didn't even mean to start off in that space. So I think that, you know, black or white, if an officer, is stopping you they should have grounds to do so and it's within your rights to be asking what those grounds are and, and why it is you feel that you know they should be stopping you and not joe blogs across the road and that's the sort of contact we should be having so that if you are stopped you are fully aware um that you know they're stopping you for what is a reason or grounds where you know it might be after talking to you that they think well actually um, thanks for your time. We're moving on because they'll. You could say, you know, you just come out of the shop or come out of work, and there could be so many different scenarios. Is what I'm saying, and it's, it's difficult to know in terms of black and white. You should have the relevant grounds to make the stop. Your your colleagues, um, I'm sure white and black colleagues. I'm not singling out any particular demographic of colleague, but your colleagues, do they feel the um, lack of cooperation, if you like, from the black community? You know, it's such a hard call. I, I, I really couldn't say, if I'm honest. That what, I will, what I will say and what potentially is not available is the legacy piece. So if you take London as it is and the different areas of London and the different demographics in London, if you have someone that's coming from outside of London, they're not going to be privy to the sort of having been brought up in London and the sort of dynamics that go on. And that for me is what's missing in terms of policing is understanding the communities that you serve. So you know that there's going to be so people from Africa, you know, people from the Caribbean, people from Asia. You're, you know that, that that's going to make up the demographics. But do you know the history of any of those countries and you know how they've come to be in a specific part of London um, and and some of the, the the issues that have been that have happened between police and communities and the answer is no a lot of them don't whatever they've heard it's come from the TV or any a media outlet they haven't lived it they haven't experienced it and there's nothing within policing that allows them to understand that. Because I think part of it would be, if you were to understand that, then how you police your communities would be, you know, would be an improvement for sure. Given all of that background, how did you end up being a police officer? <laughs> so um, I, I had a number, number of influences, actually. So uh, the first one was I was on the buses. So I, I started off as a, a trainee, a youth on the youth training scheme back in the 80s uh, that the, the government used to run, which earned you about 25 quid a week, which was a lot of money back then. Um, so I, I worked my way through the buses and I became a bus inspector, which um, 
So I was about 23 and uh, I became a bus inspector and we had contact then because we would do operations with the police and we did have to get on the bus, check people's tickets. And there were people that were sort of like, you know, uh, changing the numbers on their tickets and all of that sort of stuff. So we used to run those kinds of operations. So I had links with the police then. Uh, and then a, a, a few of them left to join. And they were said, oh, why don't you join? And I thought, mm, I'm not sure. But the, I think the one that sort of like sold it to me was that my brother was in the police at that time. So I kind of thought, well, you know, it can't be that bad if my brother's in it. And, you know, these people that I'm working with um, have gone off to be police officers. So that's how I came into it. And did you immediately want to be a detective rather than, you know, a PC? Do you know what? It's, it's a vanity thing, if I'm honest. I thought my bum was too big for my trousers. So um, I didn't like the uniform, if I'm honest. So uh, wanting to become a detective and lose the uniform was the sort of way I, I followed to get there. I'm sure your bum was beautiful, whatever uniform you're wearing. Don't get me wrong, but I get your point. Black woman has to shock out. You have to look good, even if you're going to arrest somebody. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. God, Come on now. Come in this on. day and age. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's still the same though. Things haven't changed in that respect. Um, what do you do? What 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 do you do as a detective sergeant? Though, what do you do? So uh, my 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 role when I was a detective sergeant was to supervise the detective constables within a small team, and uh, we would deal with various sort of crimes in that regard in the criminal investigation department, the CID, uh, and that was it really. So we we had a range of crimes from your low level um, sort of like criminal damage to the high level stuff of, you know, murders and that kind of thing. So you'd be involved in a number of things. And I, I was their supervisor, basically. And do, when you are faced with a murder, where do you begin as, as a detective? What, what have you, can you share any of that experience with us? Was there any particular murder? So, I think the main thing around any investigation is that you need to preserve um, evidence. Um, and, and part of that would be preserving the scene to make sure that you capture as much evidence uh, to build your case as possible. So that's, that's a sort of broad spec in terms of, you know, dealing with, with any investigation, to be honest. But in a murder, then clearly you're going to be having other resources to help you to do that. Is, is it, murder is not glamorous, but is the investigation, can it be deemed as glamorous? From what we see on television, it, you know, it's kind of intellectual, for example, trying to work out puzzles and so on. And, um, you, you know, the cops and robbers or, you know, cops and murderers kind of scenario where you're always on, on, on the, um, following the footsteps of somebody who doesn't know how close you're getting and so on. There must be an adrenaline buzz about it, or is it? No, you know, it, it, it's a job. It's a job. And, it, you know, you're trying to solve a problem in terms of your investigation. And I think what's missed, what's missed is the human aspect of this. So from our, well, from my perspective, um, there, there is no real glamour there because there's always people that will be impacted by, impacted quite badly by um, a murder, especially 
you know, well, any murder, to be honest, but, you know, when it's so sudden and, and, and violent, um, yeah, there's always people that are impacted. So there is no, no glamour, but there, there, there is a, a determination to find the perpetrator and, and bring someone to account for that. So I think for anyone, that is the main drive in order that, you know, someone pays for that crime. You can't walk away from a job like that, though. Can't you? you can't switch off at five o'clock and go home, can you? Um, no, because obviously you're always thinking, you're always trying to solve the problem. They're, and they're not, you know, people don't just walk into stations a lot of the time and, and hand themselves over. So you're always trying to think of how, you know, what you can do next and what resources you can use to solve the problem and solve the crime. Have you ever cracked a case? Uh, loads in terms of um, bringing it to trial. Yeah, there's been a number of cases, but don't ask me to bring. It. Don't ask me to think of any. But yeah, there's been a number of cases that I've been involved with where people have been brought to justice. Do you know? And I'm I'm not. This is my experience when I listen to the radio, for example, and they're talking about a young person invariably uh, being murdered in a knife crime, I almost always get a sense of whether the victim, at least, is black, because the bulletin ends, no one's been charged, nobody's been arrested. Is there a particular issue? I'm not saying that those crimes are not brought to justice. Eventually, most of those crimes, somebody's brought to book and um, convicted as a result. But initially, initially, when there is the murder of a young black person is there a difficulty in even finding a clue as to what happened here yes there is uh, and that's to do with what we've already spoken about so one of the key ways that we solve any crime is through intelligence it's through eyewitnesses uh people telling us how and what and you know how to solve the crime if you don't have that then you are absolutely struggling in terms of trying to piece the puzzle together. Uh, that is prevalent. Maybe that's too strong a word, but it, it's definitely the case in some of the investigations that we deal with in terms of not having witnesses, or indeed in some cases the victim, wanting to speak to police about what has happened. So that puts you on the back foot in terms of trying to solve that investigation. You know, in, in the next few years, we'll be coming up to the bicentennial of the first black police officer in Britain, at least in relatively modern times. A guy called John Kent was a police officer up in Carlisle. So, you know, in the next 10 years or so, we'll come up to that point. Will it be a point of celebration for the Black Police Association? Yes. Um our president, Tola Monroe, has already been to unveil the plaque um, in terms of that. So, yeah, we do recognise that uh, in terms of that, you know, their contribution to policing. Um, and I think it was even Tola that may have even kind of, you know, revealed that in terms of, you know, trying to seek out the first ever black officer in the UK. OK, a point of celebration for the Black Police Association, but what about for the Police Federation generally? Would they recognise that? I'd like, 
I'd like to think that they would, uh, because it, it 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 falls under the umbrella of policing. Um, it's not to say that they would know about it, because it wouldn't be something that they would pursue. But I'm sure if they were told that they would join in the celebrations. I'm old enough to remember the black police officer, the first black police officer in London, in my era. It was a guy called Norwell Roberts. And I was thinking about it. And what I remember mostly about him was that they often used him um, at football matches and the television camera would focus on him. (laughs) No, he's a hero to me. And those guys, can you imagine as a police officer what it was like for somebody like that? Because we're only talking about what, 52, 52 years ago, 1967 or so, what what it would have been like for him at that time? I, I, I can't, um, I, I can't, I, it, it must have been so challenging. And I, I've spoken to him um, because you've got obviously the, the, the sort of resentment coming from communities, um, both black and white. And then you've got, obviously to deal with your colleagues and the internal um, challenges that you'll face. So it must have been a really tough time. But to be fair to him, he did 30 years. So, you know, hats off to him. Absolutely. He deserves knighthood. Coming back to Robin Williams, though, what will happen to her? It seems to me, and there is one online petition for all charges to be dropped against her. I, I know you yourself have considered, you know, what you should do as a Black Police Association as well in support of her. But it seems to me that whatever the outcome, things will never be the same for her. It's almost as if she's been given, and I'm sorry to use a sort of a term like this, a life sentence, because the kind of stigma associated with the crime that she's been charged with stays with you, doesn't it? And it's not possible, is it really, to continue your career in the police force, even if all charges are dropped? Uh, It does depend on the strength of character of the individual. Um, And as I said, from my perspective and knowing her and seeing her, she has functioned in the most professional way. She is poised. She is measured in everything that she does um, in terms of the, the role model that she is um, and where she sits. So with that sort of strength of character, you know, you're always going to have people that are going to be saying what they choose to say. The reality here for me is that she has done nothing wrong. Uh, as I said, the law is such you can be in possession and found guilty internally. We have guidelines that help us to understand that you can be in innocent possession, which means that you have been sent it unsolicited. Yes, it is on your phone, but you're in innocent possession. You can delete it. You can be spoken to about it and and, and dealt with in terms of having a lesser sentence, which doesn't have you in, in court. You might get a conviction, which is a caution, which means that, you know, you can't be in problems for three years. Um, but the fact that it went to court when the misconduct, the police misconduct system 
it's really a harsh environment for anyone that goes in it. So, you know, we, we, we talk about officers, you know, being put into the misconduct system for whatever the reasons are. That, that, that process of being in there is not one where you're going to feel good because, you know, even if you've done nothing wrong, you could still have a sanction made against you that has you losing your job or indeed has you um, been given no further action. There's a, there's a range of things between those two points that can happen when you're in that misconduct process. So it's not a good environment to be in. And from an internal perspective, the misconduct process is robust or is robust enough to have dealt with the issue that Robin found herself in. And again, my question would be, and has been, why did we not use that to deal with this scenario? Stand up, stop, stand up, stand up, stop, stand up, 
just you didn't understand me You weren't sure how to love me It's not your fault, it's all mine I guess I was mixed up inside I'm so sorry Didn't mean to make you blue I'm so sorry didn't mean to make you cry Oh no, no, no Oh no, no, no Oh no, 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 no I'm so sorry. 